Hello, Mainly fans. I'm your host, Ian Saxine, here with my distinguished friend and colleague, co-host Tiffany Link. How you doing, Tiffany? I'm good, Ian. How are you? My spirits are lifted by the the new fans that we've got around the world. Konnichiwa to our listeners in Japan. Always good to see the fandom spreading around the world. I don't know if we've got main expats or there's just people who really like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow who live in, you know. The whole world loves Ian Wadsworth. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> uh, the whole world loves Henry. So That's yeah. true. He is. Superstar in the 19th century. Superstar in 2023. It's true. It's true. He haunts our dreams uh, of poetry just as the way that his ha- his house is perhaps haunted as listeners now know and as i know i certainly didn't know that from last week so i do have an update on you do henry hauntings oh okay brace yourself not exciting um (laughs) we've been recently moving some collections out of the third floor into some more climate controlled storage and so i spent a lot of time in the house by myself um over the last two weeks and uh nothing nothing but that's that's usually what happens to me. So I I was sad. I was I was really ready for it and no Nothing. ghosts. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you led with the lack of excitement that was coming out of this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want anyone to get their hopes. Up. That's right. In case you were worried. In case you were worried, this yeah. was going to be thrilling. Yeah. Not- not... Didn't want you to be as disappointed as I oh. was sitting there waiting. I'm trying the, to remember the ghost interaction. It's because you were you were expecting it. You were trying. I was, right? I, that's... Maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be the secret. The next time is to <laughs> just kind of go back there and just yeah. forget all about it. Right. I like to think still it's going to be like the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where you are hiding from your supervisors at the main historical society. Not that you would ever do that, but in this, <laughs> oh in this God. scenario, you are, uh, they want you to do some, some tedious things. So you run and hide in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's house, and then are finally greeted by a ghost apparition of Henry yeah. Wadsworth Longfellow or his family. I can only hope that scenario comes to life. Yeah. Supervisors we'll are see. like, we're going to make it happen by making Tiffany <laughs> re-alphabetize all of the catalogs out front. They'll just trap me in there for the night or something. <laughs> just in case. <laughs> uh, so people who want to get in touch with the pod or, or, or share with their friends or otherwise stay informed of, of various happenings, haunted or otherwise, where can they follow us? Yeah, please follow us on Facebook, um, Mainly History, and we're now on Instagram at mainly.history. We'll be posting some images that go along with some of our current and both our our past uh, episodes. So check us out there. And we are also still on what remains of Twitter or X or whatever else, uh, and also at Mainly History, our regular, I suppose, X handle, Xing along there whenever there's a new episode. So yes. Uh, And if you leave us a review, uh, especially if it's a good one, and you, if you write to us, we now have an email address because we're really moving along. Our email address, which is mainlyhistorypod at gmail.com. 
if you have questions, queries, fan mail, that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, you can, you can write to us and if we get enough, we can, we can do a mailbag episode where, Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Where we can, we can do that towards the end of the year where we can, we can respond to everybody's various queries about what our, what our pets like to do in their free time and other ideas about who we would invite to various activities from the past. (laughs) Now that I know that dinner party with Christ is just a, a cop out answer. I'll know better than to hang out to go bowling with the historical mm-hmm. Jesus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're like, that's right. That yeah. was a basic act. I, I don't I have nothing else to add. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Okay. What are we going to do today, Tiffany? So today we are going to be talking with the president of the Clotilda Descendants Association about the last slave ship, uh, the Clotilda, which came into Alabama and does have a a little bit of a main connection as well. Yeah. Sadly, more than a little bit, the Clotilda was owned by Timothy Mayer, the son of Irish immigrants to Maine, grew up in Maine, and then he moved to Mobile, Alabama, very explicitly to get into this uh, business and on a on a bet he he bet people that he could import a bunch of enslaved people in defiance of the u.s ban on well human trafficking the slave trade Uh, and he successfully did so in 1860 and so yes uh jeremy ellis our guest is one of the descendants of these survivors of the Clotilda, the last documented slave ship to dock on the shores of the United States. And the Descendants Association, they're still uh, they're still centered in the now neighborhood of Mobile, Alabama, Africatown. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, there's still some historic locations that you can visit in this part uh, of Mobile, this community where you can see some of the structures that they built and get a feeling for their heritage. Um, and, you know, so definitely encourage you to support that either by visiting or you can go to their website and, and donate monetarily as well. That's right. So we should say uh, the Clotilda Descendants Association, uh, it's groups like this, they are historians as well, right? And so when we when we talk about practitioners of history in all of its permutations, you know, public history and academia and everything else. Uh, that includes uh, survivors associations and, uh, and immigrant uh, heritage associations, as well as museum curators and artists and scholars, uh, as well as living historians and other, other folks as well. And so this is, I believe this is our first interview of somebody from like a, a descendants association of this nature we're very fortunate that uh that jeremy ellis was uh was willing and able to speak with us it's great to hear that history from sort of the descendant the direct um results of that history who mm-hmm. is really connected to it in a very personal way um, yeah. that's not always an opportunity we have so absolutely yeah absolutely right yes uh this is also you know a uh, a reminder uh, which in the darker sides of American history, as well as the, the the happier sides of it, that even when we're doing a show about this focused on sort of Maine and local and regional history, that stories like these are very much a 
American story, as well as international. And so even more local focused productions like ourselves to really follow these stories of, for example, well, Mainers who were involved in the slave trade that takes us in far afield sometimes. And yet, you know, the mayors are a part of Maine's history as well. And then of course, in, in his own way, uh, so, are, uh, so are the ancestors of, of Jeremy Ellis. Uh, and the other survivors of the Clotilda. Those are uh, those are part of the main story as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I say we get to it. Let's do it. So we are here with Jeremy Ellis, who's a direct descendant of Cupoli and Rosalie Allen. They were shipmates on the Clotilda, and um, he is the president of the Clotilda, Clotilda Descendants Association. Thank, thank you for having me. But first, let me say this. We are recording this a few days after the mass shooting that happened right there in Maine. So Clotilda Descendants Association sends our condolences to those impacted by this mass shooting. And so we just wanted to pause and recognize the tragedy that has taken place in your great state of Maine. So just wanted to acknowledge that. So thank you all for having me today. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for those yeah. thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, we're... Yeah. Um, all dealing with it in different ways and um you know main historical still closed uh today and yesterday and you know hoping that this gets resolved quickly yeah absolutely so jeremy uh thank you uh so much for joining us now the clotilda descendants association i mean your story uh and the story of, of your family and those of your neighbors uh it is in some ways not unique at all in the, in the great American stories, but in other ways is very unusual. You're descended from people who were shipmates on the Clotilda. What is so unusual about the Clotilda of all of these slave ships that arrived in the United States? This story is, is not only um, American history, but this is, this is world history. Clotilda and the story of the 110, I like to say it's the truth of the 110 survivors aboard Clotilda, but um, this is the only story that we are aware of where we actually have documented, written, and oral history from the survivors, those being my ancestors, as well as from the conspirators, Conspirators being Timothy Mayer, who you all are very familiar with in Maine, and Captain William Foster. Um, and we have those stories captured and those oral histories captured, which actually documents the experience of my ancestors and what they went through through the Middle Passage. So th th that's one reason why this is of significance. Um, the other reason is because this is the last known slave ship to bring enslaved people 
illegally into America in 1860. So we all know that on January 1st, 1808, the abolishment of the transatlantic slave trade took effect here in the United States. In 1820, um, the Piracy Act was amended. If you were caught participating in transatlantic slave trade, that was punishable by death via hanging. So 50 years later from the abolishment of the transatlantic slave trade, we have the final voyage, that of my ancestors, those survivors aboard Clotilda were illegally brought here by co-conspirators. So for those that are not familiar with this story, that is not only of U.S. and American significance, but this is really world history, and it has to be told from, from our narrative as well as it needs to be. Others need to hear about this particular story. That's a great point. And, you know, the uh, transatlantic slave trade, we have rough numbers of maybe up to 15 million people taken from Africa and trafficked across the Atlantic. Uh, and and then an un, uh, I know there's other numbers, some uh, less precisely known by land north to North Africa and east into the Middle East as well. But, you know, these numbers, it's so huge that it can dwarf the human scale. And of course, that that's a, a really vital part of this story. And as, as you well know, most of these people who survived the passage ended up in Brazil or the Caribbean. Uh, above all, this is where sugar plantations were in the early modern period. This was the most lucrative product. And then by the 19th century, the uh, the cotton complex that was that was growing and, and powering the Industrial Revolution. One thing that we need to point out is that, yeah, yeah I think it was roughly 15 million that, that were mm -hmm. part of the overall yeah. transatlantic slave trade. About 12.7 million Africans were subject to the transatlantic slave trade here to the to the Americas, I believe, and about 10.7 million arrived, but that means about 2 million died in transit. Correct. That's 2 million people that didn't make it. And mm -hmm. we believe that at least one, maybe two of the 110 may not have sur survived that horrendous voyage. And we can get a little bit more into what that mm -hmm. experience was like for, for, for the 110, we can't just bypass the inhumane and the significance of two million people um, subject to this not not making it in the middle passage. That's that's pretty no. inhumane. If we add in the especially in the Caribbean uh, for many centuries, the average life expectancy of somebody who survived the middle passage was still only a few years. And then when you add in the the people killed in the wars that were that were fought in many cases to acquire captives, the, the death toll keeps rising. And so this is this is like a major human catastrophe uh, that's a part of, you know, this this early period of like interconnection and, and globalization. So you're you're absolutely right. Tiffany, go for it. Sorry. Yeah, I was. And you may talk about this more when you talk about the experience um, during the voyage. But um is too less than average for not surviving the trip? Or um, do you, do we know kind of how many uh, might generally pass like on, on the voyage to the Americas during the Middle Passage? Or 
um, do we not really have good numbers for that? I mean, I'm no historian. So from my research, two is significantly less than what other ships experience with entire hundreds and hundreds of folks being not able to survive and being being okay. um, thrown overboard. So um, I can only speak to to my ancestors' story specifically, but just through my research, uh, through my personal research, um, I've read of hundreds. Uh, of of different ships where hundreds of passengers um, didn't make it. One of those being, I believe, um, it was either the Echo or the Eclipse, uh, which is one that is pretty, a a large number of of, um, Africans were, did not make it and were thrown uh, thrown overboard on that particular voyage. So very humane and something that we have to acknowledge. Well, to get a sense. Mm -hmm how difficult it would have yeah. been to survive that voyage. Um, you know, on well, one thing, that. so we know speaking to the earlier period, which I'm, I'm more comfortable as I, I teach, and, uh, but in the scholars who have studied this in depth have, have said that by the 1700s, the mortality rate on these voyages was average, maybe 10%, which was a decrease from earlier years, but it's still, that's a lot of people, right? And so the one thing for the 19th century is, you know, of course, as Jeremy well knows, this once the once the traffic is illegal, that reduces the numbers of people being taken and, and kidnapped. But that means that the enslavers were more interested in secrecy. And that occasionally that shapes, it of course makes the information harder. But then they were also in many cases you know, these people become evidence of a crime. And so when some of these enslavers, we have some accounts of when they thought they were going to get caught, they would just push these captives over the side or, you know, otherwise kill them or get rid of them. And so this was a sort of double-edged sword, even as as the traffic is being outlawed. Jeremy, before we get to some more of the the story on the the, the voyage and the, the American side of this, uh, since we have this opportunity to speak to the human side, so much of the specific African heritage of survivors is not always remembered or known or recorded. You know, it's lost. But so for uh, for your family, do you know, I mean, we know so many survivors are Ashanti or Yoruba or other uh, other specific West African people so do you does your family do you know what specifically your roots are and the and the passengers uh, on the clotilda or survivors uh, i'm sorry yeah um and th- thank you for that question because it's important that as we tell this story we always have to be co- centered at the core is the people mm-hmm. and so that's really important to to our organization I'm going to answer your question, but first let me at least um, just kind of for those that are not familiar with Clotilda Descendants Association. Mm -hmm. So our mission is to honor our ancestors, preserve our culture, landmarks and legacies, and educate future generation of descendants and the community. Our vision is to create a global network of descendants who work together to preserve and continue the legacy of our ancestors. And I say that as a prereq to me answering your question is because 
our organization is to essentially establish this global network of descendants where each of those 110 individuals who are born Clotilda, their story can be told. So luckily, I'm able to speak to two of those 110, who was Capoli and Rose Allen. Both were shipmates on Clotilda. And to answer your question directly, um, what we do know is that they were of Yoruba descent. And it was most likely, and this is from the conversations I've had with um, Dr. Nally Robinson, who has visited West Africa, and she has written um, one of the books I would recommend, um, but uh, we believe that they may have been uh, Kapoli from Southwest Nigeria. It's important that as we tell these stories, um, I have to remind people that of the 110, they didn't all come from the same tribe. They were from different tribes. Um, they all were had their own different occupations as individuals. Some worked in the market, some were soldiers, um, but they all were different occupations and from different tribes. So part of them getting to know each other as they embarked on this inhumane journey to the Americas, um, they had to do that in different languages and that sort of thing. And that's important for folks to understand just a few of the trials and tribulations they experienced, but how they came together collectively is, and, and would eventually form their own community. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, did your descendants sort of talk about or have an account sort of what the what the event was that led to their capture in terms of, you know, some earlier ages, it was, it was, it was wars in, in particular regions and prisoners of war were a pretty common category uh, of people in West Africa, but elsewhere in world history who were viewed as suitable for enslavement by sort of captors or whatever, right. In terms of paths into this, this situation. Uh, but it, for these, uh, for these people in the 1850s, do you know, was it one or two sort of bigger political events or was this sort of a series of, of more private kind of captures or something? Excellent question. Two things I'll, I'll say. Number one, what we do know is that, um, I don't know, the, the kingdom, the, the Homian kingdom was one of the most powerful kingdoms in, in West Africa at the time. And and Woman King does, the movie Woman King does a great job of showing those women warriors. Uh, what we do know is that through interview that Cujo Lewis, who is one of the most outspoken and well-known survivors, uh, when he was interviewed by Zora Neale Hurston in the book Barracoon, which is available, he talks about how um, they were captured. Right. He talks about how um, those women warriors came in at night and captured a number of, of, of Africans and would take them to King Galehi's barracoon and they were stationed there. So I definitely would recommend for those that are interested in understanding that account where it comes specifically from the survivors telling the story is, is very, and this is what I was talking about in regards to we have both the survivor side of the story, as well as we have the, 
as well as we have the co-conspirators diary and their interviews that they did. But Cujo describes what that experience was like in Barracoon. The other thing I would point out is Nick Tabor, um, who I had pleasure of interviewing as well. Uh, he released a book that really speaks to what King Galehi was like. Um, he captures that piece of history and describes kind of those, that kingdom a little and those prisoners of, of essentially war, I guess you can call it, but it really wasn't a war. They would, he would go and he would surprise them and, and, and capture and, and because, and then he would sell them. Right. So I would recommend definitely the Barracoon book as well as Nick Tabor's new book that really describe what it would have been like in during that time and what um, Cujo experienced when the women warriors came and and would capture them. Do you, and this may be too far afield for what we're talking about now. I mean, we could do probably five podcasts on all of this, but um, would these locations and tribes and communities have been as at conflict with one another as they were if it weren't kind of being fed by this opportunity to profit from other people's unfortunate situation? Like, I mean, was that sort of driving these conflicts or were the conflicts existing and other people were just taking advantage of, you know, opposing sides already at war? Well, I, I would say from from my understanding and the research that I've done is that King Leahy, I mean, there he was the driver behind behind this, right? This was his financial well-being, selling enslaved folks to Western culture, whether that's to the Americas in our case or to South America, Brazil and other or the Cuban uh, or the Caribbean islands. And so he was the one, um, King Galehi, during that that period that was attacking with his women warriors, attacking other tribes that didn't adhere to his his request. So I would say that that was essentially the driver. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, this is in terms of, and, you know, I, I teach at a public university, so I come across this as, you know, what students in the public know. And certainly, I think for many Americans, they hear that most African-descended Americans are, are generally sort of West African, uh, which is true. But a lot of these folks, you know, perhaps the majority were from more inland tribes and communities who were less wealthy, less powerful, and who were generally targeted by these much more powerful West African coastal states like Dahomey being the, uh, the most powerful by the, the 19th century. And you can see this kind of mirrored in the Americas, too, where sometimes there would be indigenous powers who were closer to the ocean and would trade with various European imperial powers for weapons and other things. And they, too, would war with the weaker neighbors inland who did not have access to this sort of trade network and then sell these captives. And so South Carolina was a net exporter of enslaved people for the first 50 years of the colony's existence because more powerful coastal tribes would traffic and enslave people and sell them out. And so we see this dynamic also right in West Africa too. Yeah, let like, me let me say this yeah. a few things to add to that. You're 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 correct. And what we do know is in Barracoon, 
where Cujo talks about, uh, and it just really speaks to how far inland they were um, because um, he talks about their journey from their tribe back to to the kingdom of Dahomey and to the Barracoons and what that experience was like. So that's captured in Barracoon, right? That's information that we may not have, we don't have a lot of, or that has never been documented that helps tell this story. And then the other thing is that they talk about how they had never seen the ocean. So you have to take into account the psychological damage um, that they would go through. Uh, Cujo describes how they were stripped of their clothes when they were put onto onto Clotilda, um, which was anchored out in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so they were stripped of their clothes, which haunted them until the day that they died. And we know that from, from Cujo's words. Um, and then they would go out into an ocean, a foreign place that they had never seen or experienced because they were inland. And for 13 days, they would be um, kept in a cargo hole. And so that's something that was traumatic within itself, right? You've been in a cargo hole, essentially laying on your side, packed in. For those that can't see the, the, the for those, this is an audio, so you can't see um, that I have my hands placed together side by side. So imagine having 55 people on one side of the cargo hold, you're laying on your side, 55 people on the other side of the cargo hold laying on your side, you're stripped of your clothes, you're naked, you're eating, sleeping, vomiting, women are on their menstrual cycles, children are screaming, um, because what we do know is that they were from the age of two to tw about 20, 23 was the age of of those that were captured. Um, and for every man, he selected a woman because they wanted to continue the reproduction cycle. So just imagine that being your experience. Um, for the first 13 days, you couldn't come up. You're on, you're in this ship on this water, the oceans are moving. Uh, you just, you have no idea what this is, where you're headed to. So that, that was their experience. Um, two things I did want to capture just to even bring some, shed some more light was some of the quotes that we got from the interviews of other survivors, right? So for example, Abachi Turner described lying in the filth and darkness of Clotilda's hole, grasping for breath, praying for a drop of water. She was one of the survivors. Matilda McCrary, who she was two years old um, when she was brought over, and she was in the Selma area. Um, when um, That's where she would eventually settle. Um, Selma, Alabama. I said Selma area as if your listeners knew, but Selma, <laughs> Alabama. Uh, we're all familiar with um, the civil rights movement that took mm -hmm. place in Selma. But Matilda McCrary was two years old. And she was sold with her mother and her two sisters were sold separately. And so she told stories of her and her sisters clinging terrified to their mother in Clotilda. So, so imagine that you're a two-year-old girl. I have a, I have a, I have a four-year-old daughter and I can't imagine a two-year-old girl in this ship uh, or in this foreign place 
and you're with your mother and you're like, what's going on? And your mother doesn't know. She can't describe. So that's what they experience. And so we have to tell those stories because folks need to understand that this was a very inhumane, systematic system and thing of what they were experiencing. Yeah. And I think the one like solitary kind of sensory fact that always stuck with me when reading and teaching this as I read it was said you could smell one of these ships coming before it appeared uh, according to to various reports from like the the 1700s and so thinking just you know and Dr. Robinson tells even yeah. the story of how you have to think about these crew these crew ships who are now in this particular story they didn't even know the crew members at the time didn't know that this was a voyage to purchase enslaved people. They would eventually find out. Oh, really? And, yeah, they didn't know. Oh. So, so Captain Foster, when he set sail in around March fourth, eighteen sixty, um, the crew members had no idea, and they would learn through um, after kind of figuring it out they they experienced two hurt what we would call hurricanes but they i think they experienced two hurricanes during this voyage they were they were chased by warships that were patrolling the atlantic ocean at the time and so they would have to repair the ship and that's when they would learn that they were actually headed to west africa and they were about to mutiny and captain foster promised those crew members additional um, uh, money when they return, which he didn't pay, but he promised them that at the time. And so the point I was going to make was that Dr. Robertson speaks about how on these ships, you have to think about these men, they would, they would rape some of the, the enslaved Africans on their way back um, because they were on these ships for 45 days headed back and um, they would rape rape some of the passengers. I we, I don't know if that happened on this particular voyage back, but that's what those ships were like. And so so it's important to capture and tell that piece of the story because it's always about the people. Um, but Captain Foster actually purchased 125 Africans from from the Kingdom of Dahomey. He would actually only leave with 110. The way that this process worked was you would anchor. Clotilda was too large to actually anchor at port. You would anchor in the Atlantic Ocean. The Dahomean warriors would bring a canoe out to the ship. And you would, after he brings the canoe out, then he spent about nine days before he actually purchased. He got worried. Um, Captain Foster did because it was taking so long to complete the transaction, but eventually they completed the transaction. I mentioned this earlier, they will strip you of your clothes and then they will load the canoe up with about 35 Africans. And then they would cut from the canoe, take them and, and load them up to Clotilda. Well, he had just loaded 35, so they had about 70. He had just loaded about 35 more, which made 110, onto Clotilda. And they had saw a English warship or a Portuguese warship. I can't remember. But they saw a warship patrolling the Atlantic, and they had to escape. 
so he actually left behind 15 of the 125 that he had originally purchased in order to avoid those warships that were that were patrolling the uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So they knew what they were doing was was a crime and they were intentional about using the Clotilda which was an atypical schooner of the time. It was actually a state of the art and that this was a very sophisticated plan is is the point I wanted to make. Um, And so they knew exactly what they were doing and uh, they were able to successfully commit this crime. And I just want to kind of set the stage for people who may not um, quite grasp how this would have happened, but, you know, the ship itself, like you were saying, the crewmen didn't quite know what it was for when they left, but the ship was sort of built so that it would have these, sort of secret holds where they would keep um, the enslaved individuals. And I'm assuming, um, like in this instance, they probably thought they were going on some kind of a merchant voyage and they would be picking up some kind of goods, not people, to bring back um, to the States. But then, like you said, when they had some damage from hurricanes and other issues, they were repairing and discovered these holds that would have very obviously been for for people. And and since these sailors were coming from the South, I'm sure they were sort of familiar with what that would have looked like. And then... So so the history and archaeological of the last slave ship Clotilda is a book that Jim Delgado, who I had the privilege of also interviewing, but he has a book that really speaks to the actual ship Clotilda. And it actually really speaks to kind of how atypical of a schooner Clotilda was and how it was from cradle. He makes this point, which I like to also emphasize, is that from the cradle to the grave, right? So from from the building of Clotilda, which was probably done by enslaved folks on Timothy Mayer's ship, uh, shipyard, uh, so Clotilda was probably built by enslaved Africans, and when he would eventually burn it, um, his last voyage was that of the 110 survivors. So, uh, and he talks about how that particular eight schooner was built, how it was atypical, but also how it could sail in shallow water as well as in the large ocean. So. Uh, it was very, that's why I don't like when people talk about the bet. A lot of people say that it was a bet uh, that Timothy Mayer made with his business partners that he could essentially pull off this crime. Yeah. But I think that that simplifies the sophistication of what really took place. And this was a well thought out plan by some conspirators and they would eventually uh, commit this crime. Thanks for that. And for just a quick sort of background then for the uh, the sort of financier uh, of, of this ship, uh, which then, then we can take this story to Alabama and the Clotilda descendants and, and what they did uh, as both enslaved, but then especially as, as free people, right? So Timothy Mayer, he was, uh, he was descended from Irish immigrants uh, and he grew up in Maine. So he was raised in Whitefield and Mayer moved to Mobile, Alabama 
when he was in his 20s. And he, he very much intentionally did so to sort of, you know, get involved in the, in the business of cotton and inevitably uh, of slavery. And so, and he wasn't unusual in this regard. And then, uh, so he and his descendants, they're, they're very much still living in Alabama uh, and in around the Africatown area, as, as Jeremy can, can fill us in on. But so a quick sort of bigger picture thing, we should kind of emphasize, right, that the mayor's move to Alabama from Maine, this was not a, a super unusual event that, uh, well, sometimes our textbooks talk about, quote, like free states and slave states before the American Civil War. The reality is that, you know, financially and legally in many ways, slavery was very much still an American institution where New England mill owners uh, who anti-slavery activists called them lords of the loom and and paired them with the so-called lords of the lash, the, the slave owners and the, and the drivers in the South, right? This was very much a national system. And so uh, although the mayors are our local main connection, they're certainly not the only ones, right? And so we wanted to kind of to foreground that. But, but let's let's add some context. So we sure. spoke about the American history, right? Mm -hmm. How slavery was abolished in 1808. We talked about transatlantic slave trade, the amendment of the Piracy Act in mm -hmm. 1820. Uh, I think it's important also to understand why Timothy Mayer, and, and you mentioned this, but I'm just going to dive yeah. a little bit deeper, why they migrated from Maine to, to Mobile. So Mobile was one of the fourth busiest ports in the U.S. by the 1850s and the second largest international seaport on the Gulf Coast after New Orleans. And I mentioned Jim's book earlier, but his book does an excellent job. When I read that book, it really brought home how much of an international port Mobile was. It speaks about the number of ships that were coming from Australia and from from New England area. So it was it was definitely an international port. So Mobile was booming. That's the point that I wanted to make. Cotton was king. And so they they being the Mayor family as well as Captain Foster and them, they saw this as an opportunity for free labor, i.e. and uh slavery was 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 really picking up in 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 the South. Um, cotton was a major export. Lumber was another major export, and so they wanted to financially benefit, and that's what they did. And even until this day, their family is still one of the richest, wealthiest families in Mobile. The Mir family still owns a, a large number of parcels in Africa Town today. So I just wanted to really dive into the why um, obviously the the free labor and the cotton uh, and so and how they continue to to benefit even today from 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 their actions and I should I, say too like uh, to your point that Mobile was a boomtown kind of at that at that period and um, Maine was really not like Maine was not really growing much in terms of people or necessarily wealth at this time period. They had had a bit of a, a, a shipping boom and shipbuilding boom sort of after the embargoes and the War of 1812 were over. But 
the 1850s to 1870s, I think Maine actually saw some population decline um, when a lot of other places were really growing and people were coming to them um, to make money or have opportunity. And so it makes perfect sense that they would have looked elsewhere for this and Mobile was probably a pretty easy place to go and find some opportunity when there probably wasn't a lot here. If you didn't sort of already have a foothold, which they probably, being somewhat more recent Irish immigrants, did not. Credit where it's due, Maine lost a significant population during the Civil War because of high recruitment rates, disproportionately so. And, you know, uh, some of these Mainers were were very much, you know, strongly anti-slavery. And so, you know, this was not totally uncontroversial. But you're absolutely right, Tiffany, that like before the Civil War, the booming economically, a lot of the boom towns in America, for some, were in these deep south new money districts. And so last thing I'll say is people hear about the, quote, old south like and the sort of money, the estates built by these cotton fortunes. Cotton was a new growth industry that really only took off in the 1820s and had about 40 years of just bonanza wealth produced production. So people like the mayors, they were new money, very much tied with these new textile mills. And so for people unfortunate enough to be enslaved laborers for much of North American history, they worked in tobacco or sugar or something else. Being in working in cotton and being a part of this new uh, business, this was very much a, a, a relatively short window of time. And it was, it was, it was a modern, interconnected, global business that was built in part with New England industry, right? And sort of, it, it was very modern. So this is not sort of like quaint and old. Like Mayer was, yeah, he was a human trafficker. He was a businessman with ties to like modern industry. And it's just not true that like, oh, when industry or like modern, you know, capitalism came along, businesses like this would have been phased out. Absolutely not. Right. And of course, yeah, Jeremy, as if the mayor fortune is still there today, which I really want to hear more from you about. Could you talk a bit about the Clotilda survivors? They're taken to Alabama. Most of them, many, sorry, many of your members of your association live in Africatown. So why were, why did they end up there? Why were they taken there? And, and what kind of community did uh, the Clotilda survivors build? Uh, so great question. So let's, let's, let's circle back. Um, I told a piece of this where uh, he would purchase 125. He would only leave with 110. Um, they were stripped of their clothes that haunted them until, until um, the day that they would, they would die. Um, but their trip back was a 45 day trip back. Uh, they would arrive around July the 8th, 1860. Um, we believe it was at least one, maybe two may have passed. Uh, but they would be transported from Clotilda onto the steamboat Czar, which was also owned by the Mir family. Mir family had a number of steamboats and things that would travel between Mobile and the Selma area. On And so they were transported, they being the survivors, onto the Steamboat Czar. They were sent up um, to Mount Vernon area onto a plantation by owned by John Dabney, who would actually get a portion of the survivors. 
Clotilda was taken down to what we now know as 12 Mile Island, and it was set on fire in 2018 through research and through um, here most recently, Clotilda would be found or rediscovered. And today, Clotilda sits at the bottom of 12 Mile Island, where the Alabama Historical Commission is now the sole owner of Clotilda, and they have been doing a number of explorations that would help tell more of this particular story, as well as the best way to preserve the ship. Um, let's get back to the people. I have one quick question about this ship. So this was the first and last voyage of the Clotilda, is that correct? Not the first they... voyage. It Clotilda... was not the first, okay. No, no, right. no, no, Clotilda was, was, was built around 1855, 1856. Okay. okay. There may have there was an undocumented voyage that Clotilda participated in in the eighteen fifties that may have also been tied to illegal slave trade. It's not confirmed, but that's one of the speculations. But Clotilda had participated in different voyages from eighteen from its from being built in 1855, 1856 until the final voyage was July eighth, eighteen sixty, when it was burnt. So that's that. So the people, Timothy Mayer and his brothers would keep the the bulk of the survivors. Captain Fossil was given a few. Uh, I mentioned John Dabney was also given a few. And then the, the remainder of them were sold. Some were sent up to the Selma, Alabama area. Um, I mentioned Matilda McCrary and her mother, as well as Radishi, um, who was another who's enslaver was Washington Smith. And so they were throughout central and lower Alabama. My ancestors, who Captain Timothy Mayer would enslave, were in the Mobile area. And they would be enslaved from 1860 to 1865. They would eventually learn, learn of their freedom um, around April 12th, 1865. And that's when they would actually try to make their way back to Africa. They actually approached Timothy Mayer. When I say they, it was about 32 of the Africans who would found Africa town. So if you think about that, about 110 or so, but about 32 of them were essentially living in the same central area. They would when they learned of their freedom, they would approach Timothy Mayer and say, hey, we want to go back. We will purchase our way back. And each time they approached him, they sent Cujo Lewis, who was one of the most outspoken of the group. And Timothy Mayer would continuously raise the price. Obviously, he wasn't going to allow his cheap and free labor to to go back. So he would he would continue to raise the price. Eventually, when they realized that they were not going to go back, that's when they decided to form their own community, uh, those 32. They asked them for land. He said no. And they would eventually purchase their own land from Timothy Mayer, where they would then found their own community. And so they knew the importance of being collective. And also, just one thing I like to point out, 
they were discriminated against not only the white folks at the time, but also the black folks. You have to think about this. They arrived naked, stripped of their clothes. They didn't speak the language. And this would be the first time that a ship of enslaved Africans would arrive 50 years after the transatlantic slave trade was abolished. So most of the black folks that were in that community were domesticated. They had either, this was generations where they had been brought up in uh, in slavery, but they were brought up domesticated. And so uh, this was another what those survivors experienced. They spoke different languages, so they were seen as barbaric. They didn't have any clothes on because they were stripped of their clothes. So when you when the other Blacks saw them, who were enslaved, they just saw them as being barbaric. And Cujo talks about this in Barracoon, where his sons would get into a number of fights um, who were second generation because of the things that the other students would, would say about them and their family. So I kind of went off on a tangent there, but I just wanted to make the point that it was very important for them collectively. Um, they saw themselves as shipmates, but they had to collectively work together because they literally came here with nothing on their back. And they that was all they knew with each other because of what they experienced. But they would eventually purchase their, their own land um, and they would found Africatown. A few things that I really like to point out because to me, it really speaks to the resiliency of who they were. They would found Africatown in 1868. So three years later, it's the founding of Africatown. Um, it would get incorporated in 1870. Uh, they would actually become, uh, when I say they, the men, uh, would become U.S. citizens in 1868. Um, they would go down to the Mobile Probate Court and actually become U.S. citizens. Um, they would form their own church, now known as Union Baptist, in 1869. My ancestors purchased their first land in 1872 two acres of land that they purchased from Timothy Mayer, keeping in mind that Timothy Mayer would force them to work 12-hour days and only pay them for 11-hour days. Um, but then also, they uh, and this is important, they would cast their first and only ballot in 1874. So they actually would vote for the first time. After mm. three attempts, they eventually would vote and have to pay a $1 poll tax to, to cast that that ballot but i will to, just I, I, add for our listeners we people interested in black reconstruction in the south and the experience of people like uh, the clotilda survivors uh we have an earlier episode about black reconstruction in mississippi and the relationship of the main born sort of republican relatively pro-civil rights governor there so if they want more about this so i just wanted to chime in with that just so that people can have more context on what uh, Jeremy is talking about. Please continue, Jeremy. Just imagine that they literally came here with nothing on their back, literally. <laughs> and the resiliency they show with becoming U.S. citizens, casting their first ballot, purchasing land, starting their own school, their own cemetery. To me, that is beyond imaginable and just speaks to their intellect and their bravery, their courage, their collectiveness, and their resiliency. They were survivors. Yeah, agreed. Do you know how many 
enslaved people the mayors owned at the end of the Civil War. Um, just to kind of think about like how many were from the Clotilda voyage as opposed to were were sort of already there and, and sort of that's a that's a good question. That's a good question. I do not recall. I believe he took about twenty three or so from the actual voyage and then he had already had enslaved folks mm -hmm. but I, I don't recall um i believe that information is available in the in the census somewhere in one of the one oh, of the sure. census yeah. but i can't i can't recall off the top of my head do you we, think that you kind of mentioned that the um clotilda uh, passengers they had uh, occupations and skills that they had in africa um and because they were sort of first generation um, Africans in America, do you think that sort of helped them? The Clotilda survivors collectively worked together. And so them collectively working together is how they survived in the, in the America. There's a story where one of Timothy Mayer's, I believe it might've been, it may have been one of the Mayer brothers striked or attempted to strike one of the women and all of the survivors dropped their dropped stopped what they were doing and they went over there and they were about to essentially assault and beat up the the mere family member who had hmm. who had did this but again this speaks to their collectiveness but also right. they were not domesticated and so they were not going to sit back and allow Timothy Mayer or his wife um, or anyone uh, abused them. And perhaps that is one example of not being domesticated and understanding collectively as a group. Yeah. They would support each other. So I, I, I'll say that. Yeah. Can we ask Jeremy, Africatown was very African in its its cultural legacy. And so I know that there's, and there's well-documented, certainly there's there's problems and there's, uh, we can talk about inequalities of wealth and just, you know, theft by the mayors. And that's all part of the story. But an important part of the story is, I'm, I'm sure you agree, is that there's, there's this rich African legacy in Africa town. And so uh, for people who, you know, have not been there, which I think most of our listeners would not have, um, and wouldn't be familiar. So what are some of the things that it means? What What, what is some of the African experiences that remain in Africatown among the Clotilda descendants and their neighbors? Um, gonna... Great question. So one of the objectives of the Clotilda Descendants Association is to honor our ancestors through and their origins or their African origins there um, and we and commemorate them. So I'm going to answer your question, but first I have to to mention our Spirit of Our Ancestor Festival. That's something that we conduct every year. That is the first weekend in February this year. February, the we'll have a a film festival the earlier that week, uh, where we'll where we'll show the Descendant film for folks that haven't seen the Descendant film. That's available on Netflix. And it tells the story of our ancestors. Uh, but we'll show that at, at a few of the public libraries. But we have our signature event, Spirit of Our Ancestor Festival, on that Saturday, February 3rd. And that event 
has a number of different speakers. So for example, Hannah Durkin is going to be there from London. She has a book coming out in January that's going to tell more of the individual stories of, of the ancestors. Uh, but we also have our signature play, An Ocean in Our Bones, An Ocean in My Bones, which was written and directed by Terrence Spivey. We've put this play on uh, for three years now, um, and it it brings our ancestors to life. And it gives folks an opportunity to hear from our ancestors. And so we will have that um, on Saturday, February 3rd, 2024. Um, the other things that for folks that are interested, Union Baptist Church is there, right? The actual church that they were found. Uh, the cemetery is another place I recommend folks going to visit. And then also the Heritage House, which we just opened of this year, 2023. And the Heritage House, which is in the heart of Africa town, is a has an exhibit called Clotilda that tells the story of our ancestors. Uh, that's at www.clotilda.com for those that are interested. But um, that particular tells the origins of their Western African experience, all and it takes you all the way through their modern day and present day. And it also has a few of the artifacts from Clotilda, the ship, in that exhibit. So we invite everyone to come down to tour the Heritage House, as well as take the, the local tours that are conducted by a few of the tour operators in the community that will take you to some of the historic sites in Africatown and the surrounding area. Um, and then finally, our organization, I mentioned the Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival, we also have our our landing event, and that is conducted around July the 8th every year. And that event is where we commemorate the arrival of our ancestors on July the 8th, 1860. And that's where um, all of the descendants, where they're white, and they tell different stories of their ancestors. So uh, those are two events that we our organization conducts, and then there's some number of different landmarks that are available, but definitely everyone should, oh, Mobile County Training School, the school that they started is another important landmark that's there in Africatown, uh, but everyone should come down and see those sites and those locations and specifically visit the Heritage House. Great. And just to kind of frame it for people, Africa Town is a, like a a neighborhood within. It's Mobile a it's a community. Like a community. Yeah, it's a community okay. in Mobile. Actually, I'm gonna drop um, Stephen's name, but Stephen Oliver. I don't know if you all are familiar with him, but he's from that uh, from the area in Maine, and he participated in Africa Town design competition, and he is a great advocate and someone who has visited Africa Town on several occasions. Uh, his name is Stephen Oliver. I, I'm sure he doesn't mind me mentioning his name, um, <laughs> but he is someone that has main ties, that has been an advocate for Africa Town and the work that's going on. Right. Do you know how many descendants um, sort of still live in the Africa Town community area? Uh, it's less than 1% today. We have mm -hmm. a few. 
but I, for some uh, reason i thought it was higher this is good to know oh okay no it's, uh, i would say if i'm being honest i would probably say between one and three percent i said less than one percent but uh let me up that number to about one to three percent probably our descendants is a is a more accurate okay. is more accurate and how many do you know or how many descendants do you know of that are out there um you know beyond africatown or alabama oh i i don't know that's one of the visions yeah. of our organization <laughs> uh, right now we have eight families represented out of the 110 okay. in our organization and we look to continue to grow that number Excellent. i wanted to ask one other culture question then we'll turn to present day briefly and then we gotta we gotta wrap up so you mentioned a, a festival is there a particular dish or like local like musical tradition everybody loves food is there something particularly that africatown is proud of that you know is a, a sort of cultural uh legacy that marks them as a little extra special for the neighborhood so, so that's a very good question um i'm not the culinary descendant so, <laughs> but, but Ms. Vernetta Henson, who does an excellent job of, who's one of our older descendants, she is, is the cook and she's actually been advocating for us creating a, a cookbook, which we haven't done yet, but she is the advocate. But the point I wanted to make is for those that are interested, if you go to YouTube, there's a series called The Descendant Cookout, Ooh. which Participant Media did this in connection with um, Stephen Statterfield, the host of High on the Hog. I don't know if y'all saw that on Netflix, High yeah. on the Hog. But if you go to The Descendant Cookout on YouTube, um, it speaks to kind of that food and, and that sort of thing. So I'm going to give Miss Henson a shout out. Nice. Um, because she's the person, she's the descendant who really can speak to the, the food aspect of things. Great. Could I then ask, turning briefly, so we have, you know, sometimes you, you hear Americans talking about the financial legacies, right, of, of slavery, and then, of course, also segregation and inequality that live with us to this day. And sometimes these debates you get bogged down in like the well how are you going to keep track of who experiences what and how is there going to be a fair way of doing this and as an early american historian well as a as a history teacher i have stronger opinions about how on a national level there's more straightforward ways to to measure dollars and cents but as an aside your case this case in africa town seems to me almost uniquely cut and dry where the Mayer family owns a lot of the town and is directly responsible for profiting for free from the labor of the Clotilda survivors. And the mayors have a lot of money. My question is, so then, does the Clotilda Descendants Association have any thoughts about restitution or justice, especially in a tangible way for like financial inequality uh, and the legacies of slavery? and and discrimination uh and we won't even need to talk about america but we could talk about neighborhood issues that maybe you think would be reasonable 
in the 2020s? Uh, so I'll, I'll say this. Uh, the Clotilda Descendants Association as an organization believe that descendants of the 110 Africans taken into captivity and held as slaves should receive reparations. The descendants are in a perfect position to investigate the possibility of reparations in the many different forms it may take. So uh, we do believe that we are old and should receive reparations. And we believe that if that's what you're asking. Um, yeah, like, what, yeah, like buildings, investment, loans, schools, you know, this looks there's there's professionals who study this. So this isn't like some abstraction. I'm not a specialist. I respect the specialists. Right. But like um, so, yeah, in terms of and you can be you can be as specific as you want. No, I I think that that's the importance of of the HR 40 bill that's been in the Senate and brought to the floor. Is the sorry, the state yeah. Senate? No, HR 40, the US HR. Oh, the 40. US HR. Okay. Yeah. Yes, because okay. that's a study that's supposed to identify. And we believe that in the reparation conversation, that encompasses more than just land, right? There's an mm. educational disparity. There's obviously a financial disparity and uh, wealth and so disparity. So all of those things collectively are part of this reparations conversation. Mm. It's not just money, it's land, it's education, it's a number of different categories that have to be taken into account. So this is a perfect, this story of the 110 is the perfect case study for that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it checks all the boxes. So uh, we should be on the forefront of, of that study, identifying what that looks like and eventually securing, securing that holistically. Yeah. I really appreciate how you brought up in the beginning that this is such a unique situation where you have um, still a group of people that have created a community that is still visible today um, and has a heritage today. And yet you have both sides of like the historical narrative of how they even ended up there in the first place. So it, it is a really unique situation. And um, yeah, like you said, a great opportunity for a case study because it's, um, you, you know, having helped people with genealogy for a long time and historical research for a long time, it is just really rare to have this much documentation and uh, like sort of traceability and accountability. So um, yeah, it's a great, a great opportunity. And I guess I just want to know, like you mentioned that there's still mayors in the area, that they still own parcels of land in Africa town, you know, like I assume you might have interaction with them or that descendants or farther reaching family members. How does well, that go? How do you well, handle actually, that? That's, like... <laughs> that's an interesting. So prior to December 9th, 2022, the descendants and the mayor family had not been in communication um, this was not at the, not because of the descendants, but the Mir family just wasn't speaking. Um, there's an article on al.com, which is Alabama's um, digital newspaper that captured that historic moment um, that took place between the officers of CDA, Clotilda Descendants Association, and the Mir family. That was the first of its kind. So I can broadly say that since that December the 9th meeting, 
the officers of Clotilda descendants and the Mayor family have met on occasions, and the Mayor family has met with our general body on two occasions. And so we are opt we are cautiously optimistic that we can work with the Mayor family for the revitalization, uh, for healing first, right? So for healing for descendants. So reconciliation and healing is on the forefront of these conversations. And then the secondly, for the revitalization of Africatown, the community. So that's how those conversations have gone between the descendants and the Mayor family to date, and hopefully more to come on on that reconciliation and healing piece. That's encouraging to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that. I guess to tie it just to the H, uh, HD40 you mentioned, that's a good argument for, look, there are so many stories that are not quite as direct or cut and dry as the Catilda, which is why I think I would argue many opponents of this study oppose it because, look, there's plenty of evidence, um, but the more it's studied, the more clear a lot of the sort of financial ties and, and dots that be connected there can be are. And uh, and the without, study, the study yeah. is just the first piece of that, right? Sure, so, absolutely, absolutely. I, because I don't know if there's a a right answer, and I no. I kind of lean towards you and uh, think that the experts should weigh in on what that looks like, um, trusting that the experts are a diverse group of <laughs> thought and mind individuals, because um, diversity is more than just color. In some instances, is also mm -hmm. in in thought. So. We have a very diverse group of, of of educators and scholars who can speak to this. And then that second piece is obviously the execution of the study. So we are in support of both the study, but also the execution of that study and adhering to the recommendation from the study. Yeah, sounds good to me. And as uh, certainly, I think as, as a citizen, I agree with you. Speaking as historians, you know, the pod is very much in favor of studies and information, transparency being a, a good thing. Jeremy Ellis, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to share your story and, uh, and, and your expertise. The only thing I would ever disagree with you on with respect is you are a historian. Uh, you may not be oh, yeah. <laughs> academically trained, but... Uh, this is a show we talk with all kinds of historians, you know, museum curators, public historians on uh, my very first episode was somebody who does vintage baseball from, where they dress up from the 1800s and play by the old rules and descended associations and other caretakers. You, sir, are a historian. So don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And we come in various flavors. And so... Uh, thank you so much for I would have I would have heard of that. Um, I wanted to close with one thing. Sorry, yeah. Tiffany. I just oh, want to yeah. make certain that folks understand that we are a nonprofit. So we are always looking for donations and sponsorships. Specifically, I mentioned the landing event as well as our Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival. So if you all could go to theclotildastory.com, if you could go there and make a um, donation. You can make it 
specifically to our festival and it'll go towards the festival or you can make it general to be used for just our operational cost. So please support us if you can. Absolutely. And I just was going to echo Ian and just say that you are absolutely a historian and in reaching probably more people in a more impactful way than the traditional historians might um, on a story that people really need to hear and understand and on, you know, a human level and an emotional level, because that's, that's the kind of story it is. So uh, very well done, you know, support it monetarily, visit it if you're in the area, uh, you know, and just uh, learn about it because the more we know, the more we can understand each other and move forward. Yeah. Uh, professional sc academic scholars often like to say that the history is not like a cookbook uh, for the present because that can be reductive. And I, I, I stand by that. That's true. But it's also true that how can we understand where we are unless we know how we got here? And then we can better, more thoughtfully think about where we want to go together and why. And so thank you, Jeremy Ellis, the Clotilda Descendants association for helping us think more clearly about that and hopefully we will speak with you again sometime thank you oh thank you thank you for having us have a great day everyone that's our show and we do encourage you again to please visit theclotildastory.com to consider donating. Um, if you're planning a trip to Alabama or you're in the area, you know, please go and visit. You don't always have the opportunity to really make a connection with history uh, like is still available in Africatown. So um, we just encourage you to do that. Support uh, them online, you know, through their social media pages um, or, or again, monetarily is also always appreciated. Yeah. And locally, people in Maine who want to see a historic home of someone who was involved in, well, certainly sugar uh, and, uh, and invariably slavery as well, that would be the Victoria Mansion on the west end of Portland, the home of a Louisiana sugar planter. It was certainly, it was, it was mostly bought with that money and it's, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful home uh, and it's got a lot of interesting 19th century decorations and accoutrements but it's also very much tied to all of this as well indeed yeah unfortunately a lot of the splendor you see came at the expense of yes someone else <laughs> yes indeed tiffany what do we have planned um well we're working on setting a couple of different things up that may come at different times but hoping to maybe get in an episode about snowshoeing or maybe some arctic exploration cats or mm -hmm. pets. Um, so yeah, lots of good things kind of in the works at the moment. Lots of good things in the works at the moment. Hopefully there will be, yes, something to do with the proclamation of 1763 uh, yes. running through Tiffany's beloved Appalachian Mountains. And so, <laughs> uh, and of which there will be more Appalachian content as well. So with that, Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone.